Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Do you have an app idea that you've been dreaming about but don't know how to actually start building it? Use Bubble. I've been using Bubble for a number of years now. It's an extremely powerful, no-code platform that enables you to build, launch, and scale real products without investing thousands of dollars on engineers, designers, or spending time trying to code it yourself. Use Bubble's visual drag-and-drop tool to create really anything from marketplaces, SaaS products, and so much more. Join over 2 million people, including myself, already using Bubble to launch and grow businesses. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Michael Colacino. He's the CEO at Squarefoot. Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Squarefoot is actually really innovative and cool. And I'm also curious to get your thoughts on how you handled the, the pandemic and, and coming out of the pandemic. But maybe before we get into all of that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. I'm a New Yorker, born and bred, as they say. I've lived here my entire life, except for the six years that I went to college. Very cool. Okay. Uh, so what did you take in college and why? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, I majored in James Joyce. I was an English major, okay. and uh, I thought at the time that I would be a writer, and uh, I loved Joyce. I had read him in high school, and so I spent my entire college obsessing about him uh, until I got to the end and realized that there weren't a whole lot of job opportunities for James Joyce scholars. Interesting. So what got you passionate about writing at an early age? Um, I was a big science fiction fan, actually. I, I really enjoyed science fiction. I was an only child. And, uh, you know, if you're an only child, you have to make your own fun. Um, sure. And what I would do is I would read like two books a day over wow. a period of many, many years. Yeah. <laughs> okay, interesting. So walk us through you, you get out of school, you, you know, kind of went back to school, walk us through that and your career, maybe some highlights along the way, and then we'll dive into uh, Square Foot. Sure. So I, um, as an English major, I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I thought I'd go to law school, but both my girlfriend and my best friend went to Harvard Law School and Stanford, respectively, and they both hated it. And they told me that <laughs> I would hate it. And they also told me that they would hate me. Um, and so I did exactly what George Costanza did, which is I said, uh, I'll be an architect. And my concept of architecture was just about like George's that you get a T-square and, and work for Vandalay Industries, I guess. Uh, so I did actually one smart thing, which is I went to work for an architectural firm in New York, came back to New York, and I had one uh, marketable skill, which is that I had taken a, a year-long programming course at, at Harvard, which was essentially a, a full undergraduate program in a year. And okay. so I got a job as a programmer in an architectural firm. And I realized very quickly that I did not want to be an architect. It's a very... Um, a tough business and the company had an interesting idea which was to bring computer technology software to uh, architecture and to uh, real estate and space planning 
and it was a tad ahead of its time, 1981. Um, um, and then what happened is we spun off the company and there's many, many chapters along the way, but I ended up being the president of that company in the mid 1980s. And then when we busted, because uh, lots of startups bust, you only hear about the ones that are successful, but we were one of the ones that was not successful. We were ahead of our time. And so I did management consulting for five years from 87 to 91 in a okay. small uh, consulting firm, mostly advising uh, landlords, large landlords on how to use systems and technology for, for their business. And so all of this is kind of the dark ages of technology. I mean, there was no internet, there was no, uh, there was no nothing, you know, basically we, uh, we had local area networks and Macs and, and it was pretty primitive. So I got sick of that. And in 1991, I went to a brokerage company called Studley, which had been around since the fifties, specializing in representing tenants exclusively. And I was there for a decade and I became a pretty good broker, pretty, pretty good as, um, Larry David would say. And at the end of that, um, in 2001, we bought the company from the founder, a guy named Julian Studley, since passed away. And it was a really good uh, transaction because the company was a terrific group of people that uh, I had worked with for a decade and uh, that I really enjoyed being with. And I did that until 2014. We were the, I was the president of that company until 14. And then we sold it to a large Britishly, uh, sorry, large publicly traded British company called Savills. Got it. Okay. Very cool. So what made you come to square foot and what exactly is it? Yeah. So um, at the end of my contract in 2018, I realized that this large amount of prop tech uh, venture money had flowed into the prop tech space. And so I decided, you know, if I was going to do this marriage of technology and real estate, I had to do it now. So okay. uh, I spent a year shopping for companies and uh, talked to a lot of CEOs, talked to a lot of so a lot of business plans. And the one that I liked the best was Square Foot because it was as close to what I had been doing. Uh, uh, as, as any of the companies that I looked at, except it had a couple of fundamental differences. The first, it was a purely technical, technologically driven company. It was based on the technology and it had therefore a much younger uh, workforce that had been built kind of from the ground up. And I found it very refreshing to be around them. And I thought that it was exciting to finally get the chance to bring uh, the real estate business into the 20th century, much less the 21st. <laughs> very cool. So walk us through because you were president and then you became CEO, correct? Yes. So, so every company, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, sorry. Well, every company evolves and uh, the founder of the company, Jonathan Wasserstrom was a brilliant guy who had a brilliant idea and uh, he brought the company to a, to a certain level, but at a point of, of growing the company nationally and maybe internationally, uh, it's useful to have done that before. So Jonathan hired me as president initially here in November of 2019. Uh, not great timing, by the way, because COVID was right on the horizon. And, and then as we grew the business uh, over time, it became more and more apparent that my skills would be useful being in the CEO slot. And so Jonathan moved up to chairman uh, and I slid over and uh, took over as the CEO at the end of the summer. Got it. And actually, I think that's really good advice that like, Sometimes you need to, you know, make a change based on getting like somebody like yourself that's been through kind of the next evolution of a company, right? I think that's actually really good advice in itself. Yeah, well, Jonathan is a high, is a very high character person. And so his interest is in the idea and the company and the people. 
And sometimes, you know, that means leading the charge. And sometimes it means, you know, bringing in somebody who uh, has done it before, as you said. And I don't like to make analogies with Steve Jobs, but uh, the fact of the matter was, you know, Steve Jobs had that same idea uh, too. He was wrong. <laughs> it turned out he really was the right person to uh, to do it. So who knows that at the end of the day, maybe Jonathan will be doing the job and I'll be doing something else. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So before we dive into kind of the transition and, and you know, your thoughts and how you got through the pandemic, let's dive into what exactly SquareFit was maybe when you joined and how has it changed to what it is today or, or how has it stayed the same? Sure. So the, the basic one of the basic problems with the industry is a lack of transparency about the product that people are interested in. So a tenant cannot really find uh, office space on the Internet. Very different from residential where you can go on Street Easy or Zillow and see pretty much the entire market. Um, right. The industry in the commercial and the office side has been essentially you know, non-transparent. So the first thing that SquareFoot is, is it's a listings platform that allows uh, a user to look at the space in the market that they're interested in and both see it, you know, in the sense of understanding its basic terms and economics, and also understand it uh, by getting in contact with a square foot broker, because we're a brokerage as well. So the first thing that the that the company is, is it's a listings platform, squarefoot.com, that uh, brings in people who are interested in office space. And uh, the second thing it is, as I said, is a brokerage company where if you need advice in figuring out what to do, we have brokers on staff that will help you do that. And uh, that's pretty much the core of the business. Uh, when I started, there had been an idea that the company could use very junior people directly out of college because the platform uh, for implementation of the transaction was sophisticated and would guide people through. But at the end of the day, there's something about being a real estate broker and understanding how to execute transactions and serve clients that really required more senior people. So one of the first things I did with Jonathan is I said, hey, you know, you have an engine here for creating leads and opportunities that no other major brokerage company has. Why don't we go out and hire a bunch of, you know, mid and senior level people and use that as an inducement and produce a much more high revenue, better, more successful company. And we decided to do that right at the beginning of 2020. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in March of 2020, uh, many businesses were, were harmed, but our business was absolutely stopped in its tracks. Uh, there was nothing that we could do. We couldn't show space, um, can't do transactions. And so we spend most of 2020 doing a couple things. One is surviving. And sure. the second is uh, applying focus towards the product and the strategy so that when things turned around, which they started to do initially at the end of 2020, um, and then slowly through 2021 that we would be prepared to grow. And so in 2021, we expanded from New York, which is where we started. Uh, and we had offices, set up offices in Los Angeles, Houston, Atlanta, and Nashville. So we're now kind of a, a small scale national brokerage company. Got you. Okay. So walk us through some of the decisions that you made in during the pandemic to basically survive. Like, did you, were you, are you guys venture funded, self-funded, a bit of both? Walk us through yeah. uh, where you are with that or were with that at the time. Yeah. So at that time, the company was exclusively venture backed. 
And okay. we had just completed a fundraising round at the end of 2019 and 20, the beginning of 2020, okay. which was extraordinarily good timing. Sure. Because that provided us, provided us with the capital to, to survive uh, as, as we did. And uh, so that was what we did there. I, I'd say there's two lessons that I, I kind of have learned over my career and some research that I've done that I think is, is useful for people to hear about. The first lesson is that when something bad happens, you have to take immediate action. And the tendency, uh, especially if you're a human being and you, and you care about your people, is to sort of freeze in your tracks and hope for the best. And so I had been in downturns in the late 1980s and early 90s, in 2000 and 2008. And in each of those situations, the, the people who had took immediate action survived and did well. In fact, in, in 08, as soon as the crisis began to manifest itself, I started immediately uh, reorganizing the company. And we did that immediately. And so we did the same thing here. Now, the thing is that the second lesson, which is one I've learned more from the academic side, from like the Harvard Business Review side of things, is that companies that cut sharply um, do very poorly when they come out of a recession. And companies that are in denial and don't do anything do very poorly. And the companies that do well are the ones in the middle that do two things. One is become more operationally efficient, which means doing the same stuff, but for less money and, and in a more efficient way. And two, that invest in growth in, in spite of the fact that the recession is happening. And there was a survey done once of CEOs and, and they said, you know, how many CEOs in this survey, it was like 60 of them, how many of you think that it's a great idea to invest heavily in a recession? And like, you know, 58 out of 60 said yes. And then the follow-up question was, well, how many of you have actually done that? And the answer was like 12. <laughs> so it takes a lot of uh, combination of, you know, will, audacity, and uh, and good financial backers in order to be able to actually invest when, when things are looking grim. But that's what we did. That's how we built out those offices uh, in 2021. And we made ourselves operationally efficient by going and looking at every expense that we had and saying, if we want to do this, can we do it for half the price? And that's exactly what we did. Interesting. Okay. So walk us through what's similar and what's different pre and post pandemic, because your industry's really taken a hit, right? And obviously with some people staying remote, a little bit of a hybrid approach, or even being fully back in the office, what have you seen? Because you're, you're in the thick of it, really. Yeah, well, uh, that's a very, very complicated question. And uh, it also suffers from, you know, strong tendency towards bias. Um, because obviously I'm in the business of providing um, real estate for people. And so I'm going to think of it in, in, in those terms. What I would say is the following. Uh, number one is that um, hybrid has been around for a long time and remote work has been around for a long time. And if you look at the history of it, organizations that have tried to do it have been almost uniformly unsuccessful. And this goes back to the 1990s when AT&T tried it, Yahoo tried it, IBM tried it. They all failed. And so I think we have to uh, think about, you know, George Santayana, who said, if we don't study the past, we're going to repeat it. So that's that's number one is I'm I'm a little skeptical overall about the ability to completely have a remote uh, workforce. Um, I think another point that's a little bit contrarian is that in terms of demand, office demand, it's not a linear function. It's a step function. And by that, I mean that if I decide that people are going to work at home two days a week, that does not directly translate into a 40% reduction in demand uh, in my need for office space. 
Um, and I could actually make the argument that COVID and all of the challenges that has brought about, uh, it's brought about means that people should actually take more office space in order to be able to make the space more accommodating for their employees. Um, and so I think there's a lot of confusion about that. People say, oh, well, people are gonna work at home two days a week, everybody should get rid of 40% uh, of, of their space. But the problem is that people are not, you know, they're not fungible. They can't just be moved around. They, they need a place to actually come to work. And if you have a system that's set up to do hoteling or hot desking, those are two sort of term, terms of art about having people make reservations to, to get a space. It works very, very poorly. Imagine if you have all the challenges that you'd have at work, and also you have to figure out where you're going to be in a given day. And on Friday, uh, when a lot of people are not there, it's easy. But on Tuesday, you've got to make a reservation and it turns out the space isn't available for you. So I think it's very penny wise and pound foolish to think about this kind of linearity of something that's essentially a step function. And I think it remains to be seen what the effect of, of work from home and remote work is going to be on demand. I should also say that you know, the, the CEOs, this is another contrarian perspective of which like with Elon Musk out today, I think it's very interesting because CEOs have been very quiet about trying to get people back to work generally. I mean, there've been a few like David Solomon and Goldman that have been out there. Um, sure. But I think that the theory is that you don't want to look like a jerk if you're a CEO. And if you're demanding people to come back too soon when a pandemic has been raging and killing people, um, you really are going to look pretty bad. So I think you haven't really heard a lot from the CEO side of things. Um, and I think that what you'd find if you really polled CEOs or generally managers, that they would tell you it's a whole lot harder to manage a business remotely uh, that's that's largely remote. And I think that they've been quiet about this in large measure. I mean, Musk has been very forward, but a lot of people have kind of kept their mouth shut because they don't want to look like that guy. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm telling you, it's a hard job running a large enterprise and to not know where people are at any given moment makes it a whole heck of a lot harder. And so I think there's going to be some um, movement in the pendulum on the part of CEOs basically telling people, look, you know, we, we love the idea that you have some flexibility built into your life and we want to accommodate that. But at the end of the day, we've all got to be in the office a significant portion of the time or else we're not going to function. Interesting. So then how is like with you being CEO now? How is your team kind of in the office, out of the office, or how are you kind of being accommodating to that coming out of the pandemic? Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, this is a startup, which means it has a startup culture. And as I said, there's right. a lot of young people in the company. Uh, and just my style is such that, you know, I wasn't laying out down edicts. I'm, I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not an edict guy. And so what we did is initially uh, we allowed people to come in whatever they, they wanted during the course of the, um, of the pandemic. And then we gently put in a three-day-a-week uh, requirement uh, and said that we expected people in three days a week. And about a month ago, we went to four days a week. And, and we said, really, it should be Monday through Thursday, and people can work uh, wherever they want on Friday. And I think that's a, a pretty good compromise because it gives a full day for people to be able to do all the personal things that they like having flexibility to do. Um, but by the same token, and you know, the, the energy and the dynamic of the company is back to where it was pre-COVID because four days a week, pretty much everybody's here. So I think that's our solution. Uh, I think everybody's going to have to find their own path with that. Uh, but I do know something, which is that it's, uh, it's just a much better vibe. The culture has to do with action. Like culture is action. It's what people do every day that makes a culture. And if you're not here, it's very hard to have a culture. Um, and so that's, that's my, where I come down on it. Interesting. Yeah. Like as somebody that's worked at home 
for a number of years and kind of sometimes I'd to go in the office a few days a week or a few times a month, whatever I've kind of done it. it, it you're right. The, the culture stuff, it really sucks if you haven't worked with the people for a number of years in an office before and know each other really well. Yeah. But if you join a team remote and you don't know the other people, there is no culture. Like you barely know each other. It's kind of quick, small talk. And it's, it's, and I haven't seen it work personally to be like a new person on a team and kind of feel like you're a part of it, like a part of a culture. I feel like there is no culture and people no. could argue that with me, but it sounds like you would probably agree with that. No, I definitely agree with it. I mean, as I said, culture is action. You know, yeah. we, we, there's a lot of discussion of what, what is culture? Culture is what you do. And so the thing is, is that if I want to take care of somebody or help them or be there for them, it's just a lot harder to do it on Zoom. I mean, it's not impossible, but at the end of the day, the, the moments where you create a culture is where someone says, look, I'm having a really serious problem right here. Can someone help me? And then someone jumps in and says, I can help you. And, uh, you know, again, it cannot be done via Zoom, but it's just a lot better when you can walk over to somebody's desk and, and drop your problem on their desk and get help. So um, I think I think over the long haul, there's been a reason why people work in an office. Uh, it's not for everybody. I mean, there's lots there's lots of heterogeneity, as the economists say, you know, different strokes for different folks. I mean, highly, um, highly introverted people probably thrive, you know, when they're when they're at home and highly extroverted people suffer when when no one's in the office. Uh, and so it's going to be different, different uh, accommodations for different people. But one thing I will say is that what we haven't heard a lot of discussion of we've heard a lot of the discussion of the impact of trying to force people back into the office, but we haven't heard a lot about the effect on people who are wanting to come back in the office on not having their partners and their peers with them. And I think over a gradual period of time, people will begin to realize that there's an externality here. And the externality is that when someone chooses to stay home, there's someone else that's getting affected by that. Yeah. I've heard that from a few people that like going into the office and they feel like they're one of the very few people there. So they're like, well, now I'm sitting at my desk or I'm in the boardroom at the office having Zoom calls with people that are at home. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's yeah. I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out for sure. Yeah. What the pandemic proved is is really two things. One is it proved that we could all work at home and that the world wouldn't come to an end. And that's right. an interesting thing, but it, it's different from saying that, you know, remote work is, is the way of the future. It's different. And the second thing improved is that a lot of people really like working at home and they say that their productivity is improved by being at home. And I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that, because uh, if you like it, you know, maybe you're a little biased yourself about how you think about it. So those are the only two things we really know for sure. We don't know if people are more or less productive at home. There's been a ton of studies that have been done. They're all over the map in terms of their conclusions. Um, and so yet it remains to be seen whether or not businesses can be competitive and effective with workforces that are largely uh, remote as opposed to largely in the office. And I, it'll be interesting over the next couple of years. Uh, one thing I will say this, which is we as real estate people and architects out there, if there are any architects listening, we should do a lot of soul searching because part of the reason why people are reluctant to come back to work is that people hate the office. They just dislike their offices a lot. Uh, I'm in an office right now, which is a benching type office where people are kind of crammed together, which was very derogare, you know, a few years ago, everybody thought, okay, let's, you know, put everybody side by side and get them as close as possible and then we'll collaborate. Well, more recent studies have shown that that is actually a terrible way to, to work. And then people tend to communicate more via email when they're all benched together than they would if they were in a more typical environment. 
So other than the cost benefits of cramming people together into to carols and into benches, I'm not really sure there's a lot of utility for it. And I, I think that we should all look at ourselves and say, is this the way we should really have people work? Or should we try to think about what their needs are and maybe being jammed together and having 80 square feet per person is not the correct answer. Interesting. Okay. No, I, I agree with you. That's that's interesting. So I want to get back to square foot. So walk me through, I'm a business owner and I want to rent some space. Walk me through me coming to the platform, using the platform, and then kind of what happens ongoing as well? Sure. That's a, that's a question I'm happy to answer. Um, well, so first of all, I have to ask you a question, which is, sure. I always ask people this question, which is, do you believe that in the future, everybody is going to start their search for an office on the internet? Now think about it. Um, I, I think the answer is yes, for me anyway, and, and I'll ask you whether, what you think about it in a second. But the point is, is that we've learned to shop for everything and to get everything of importance to us through the internet over a period of a decade, but most specifically over the last two years. So what do you think of that thesis? Yeah, I agree. I start everything on the internet. Right. So, okay. So the first premise of our business is it, maybe now only a small percentage of people start on the internet, but eventually everybody will. And that means little companies, startups, intermediate size, creatives, law firms, and General Motors, everybody is going to start their search on the internet. And um, and if nothing else, just to get informed about what the reality of the market is before you go out and start engaging, you know, your big brokerage company. So if you believe that, then the question is, where are they going to end up when they do that search? And our mission is to make sure that they end up on squarefoot.com. So if you go to the internet uh, and you type in, I need 5,000 square feet of space in the Flatiron District in New York City, you're going to end up on a Google page that's going to have us at the top or close to the top. Right. And so the first thing that someone does is they click on that and they they end up going on a site which actually shows them things that are 5,000 square feet of space in Chelsea. And it's got pictures and it's got descriptions and it's got information. And so they look at that and, and they say, oh, I get a sense of what's going on. And then they're asked to engage uh, with the system and type in their uh, email address and phone number. And that's step, step two. And step three is they'll get a call from from one of our, what we call business development representatives. They're not brokers. Their entire mission is to call someone and say, hey, I just saw that you're looking at some space on the internet. Can I help you? Like, what is it that you need to know? And the person at the other end usually says, well, I'm not really quite sure how much square footage I'm going to need. Or they say, I don't know what the rents are really going to be. Or, you know, are there other places I should be looking? They have a whole series of, of questions that they ask, which are not what typical broker calls are like. Most broker calls are trying to get somebody who has no interest in space um, to have a meeting with them, you know, when their lease doesn't come up for four years, which is a very, very miserable, you know, existence, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I can um, imagine. I say, that's how I started anyway. So it's, it's not fun to call someone who has no interest in talking to you about space and trying to get a meeting with them. What we do instead is we give you some information that's useful uh, that you're looking for at the, at the given moment. Uh, and so after this conversation, the business development person says, well, would you like to talk to a broker who has a much more comprehensive knowledge of your market and can put together a report of all the available space in that market for you to talk through? And would you like to do it on next Thursday, for example? And you'd be surprised. A very large percentage of people say, sure, I'd love to do that. And so next Thursday, uh, they get a, an email uh, with a link in it. And the link brings them onto our site and to a different place which has uh, the space report that shows all the available space that's available uh, that they asked about. 
And then they'll go through it with a broker. And if they see something that's interesting or several things, they'll arrange to go look at the space, like let's say the next Thursday after that. So within a couple of weeks, they've gone from searching on the internet to actually physically looking at space with one of our brokers. Um, and so one of the key things about what we do is speed to market. Uh, our goal is to get these things done quickly and efficiently so that executives don't have to waste their time or anybody doesn't have to waste their time uh, going through a lot of process that's unnecessary. We try to get them to the space as quickly as possible so they can see what the market is and, and go from there. And then from that point forward, the platform essentially guides you through the transaction process. So you issue proposals, you mark them up, you do all the stuff that, uh, that you do as a typical real estate broker. Uh, and at the end of the day, you sign a lease and, um, and that's, that's sort of where you finish. Interesting. The one thing that I thought was interesting, and I obviously, I don't know much about the space, but what I thought was interesting about what you provide is I can type in how many employees kind of, right. uh, average like space, rough space per employee, but then you right. actually recommend additional things to me that from my perspective may or may not dawn on me that i actually need is that right fair to say or, or maybe elaborate yeah, on yeah. that yeah well i think it goes to the overall mission statement which is the idea is that we want to give people help uh, and figure out their space search in any way that we can through the internet so we're not right. demanding that someone come in and have a meeting with us in order to kind of find out about stuff. We'd like to push as much information and knowledge out onto the internet as possible, uh, with the theory being that if you help somebody, uh, it builds trust, and then that makes it more likely for them to want to work with you down the road. So we have a whole series of projects of uh, what I would call sort of educational uh, projects to help people figure out their needs when they've got uh, when they've got a space requirement that's coming up on them. So, for example, one of the things that's very occurrent right now is people are looking at uh, at booths like the one that I'm in right now. I'm I'm in an office, but I'm also inside of a booth, and that's something that has a lot of benefits in terms of privacy and in terms of acoustic isolation. And so figuring out how to incorporate those into a space plan is an important thing to do. And we're working on software to be able to help people figure out how many of these they would need, uh, how much they would cost, and how to enhance a typical layout with this kind of post-COVID useful tool in the design of space. Yeah, interesting. Because I think that's the challenge with just me seeing a driving by a building and being like, Hey, I like that building. It's in a good location. I should reach out and see if I can just go check out the space. Right. Sure, and right, sure. it, it's just a complete stab in the dark. And then when I wander through, I need to envision like, well, I need to, is there a kitchen? Do I need a kitchen? Do I need some of these pods? Do I not need these pods? Like how many conference or meeting spaces do I need? Right. Like some people can vision that some people can't envision that. Right. And right. So the fact that you help kind of that whole process where somebody knows what they're from somebody that knows exactly what they need to somebody like me that would need a lot more guidance. Right. You know, it's interesting when I first came here and I had worked in a traditional brokerage company for 26 years before, before I came here, yeah. um, I would have said that the most useful thing for a, uh, for a prospective tenant would be a floor plan that shows the plan of the space. And there's no question that a floor plan is important. But when I got here, I realized that for our users, it's much more important to have high quality photographs of the interior of the space. And in fact, and, and so that's what we do. We have lots of good quality pictures so that you can actually see what the configuration of the space is today. 
Uh, and then as we evolve, the next step up is going to be Matterport and video so that people are going to be able to visualize the space more than just as a group of pictures, but actually in, in three dimensions. And while we are not, you know, we're not a Matterport providers, like there's other people that have to do the actual video work, we do have the space in our database to be able to incorporate that going forward. And so my vision of the product, you know, a year or two down the road is going to be one where you can do a lot of reviewing of the space visually, economically, uh, you know, sort of texturally uh, before you actually have to go out and look at it physically. Nope, makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I thought was helpful in that is you provide a market report based on the location that I'm looking at, because like I said earlier, like I think obviously like there's areas that I would want to be in, but there might be adjacent areas that are maybe a little bit more expensive. And I'm saying, yeah, that's fine. I'm willing to spend a little bit more. Or, you know, if I go a block or two over, I can save, you know, X amount of dollars, right? And so the fact that you've provided that research and about the area, I think is actually really useful too. Yeah, I mean, you can draw a, a polygon around a particular area and find everything that's in it, which seems like a perfectly intuitive way. That's the way people think about neighborhoods, right? You think about them in terms of their, of their borders, of their delineation. And, uh, you know, it's so strange that our industry has this very basic ideas of how people would cognitively engage with a search like this. And yet that's not how we do it. Because if you call the traditional brokerage, including the one I used to work for, their first approach would be like, well, we don't want you to really look at space. Let's have a meeting first. Let's sit down and talk about your requirements and get to know you and so forth, which is really very focused on the broker's needs and not on the tenant's needs. You know, that's about me getting something from you, which is your attention and your physical presence in my space. What we do instead is we sort of say, okay, you're thinking about this. How can we help you think about it? And what you're saying, which is the ability to define a polyline and say, okay, show me everything that's in here, uh, is a really basic tool that you'd think everybody would provide as a first step in the process, but nobody does except us. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I think a lot of people like about one of the very few pros things that came out of kind of the working from home thing is not having to commute. But you guys actually have a commute calculator, which I thought was kind of interesting. I And just as like when you're doing research, right? I, I think that's actually quite, quite fascinating. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that as well? Well, yeah, I'll say, I'll say sort of two things about it. One is that as we really are, as we were realistic about what's happened with working from home, we realized a couple things. One is what I said before, which is that people really don't like the way that their space works. But the other thing is we realized is that people really hate their commute. Sure. And yeah. I don't, I don't know that that that's sort of a genie that's been let out of the bottle. And I don't really have an answer for it. Like if you have an hour and 15 minute commute, commute from New Jersey into New York city, I just can't imagine how miserable that is. First of all, <laughs> Fair and, enough. so, you know, and if you don't have the money to be able to move into the city and be close to your job, like I really understand that as a motivation for people not wanting to uh, being more interested in working from home. And I don't know quite what we're going to do about that because it's it's a weird thing because the less money that's spent on public transportation, you know, less fares that people do, the worse it's going to get. Yep. So yeah, we're kind of trapped in a little bit of a, you know, a macroeconomic box here, which is as people flee the city and they stop uh, paying tax, you know, supporting businesses that pay taxes and they stop taking rides on on the subway, you're going to find that the subway is going to get a lot worse, not a lot better. So I don't know how that all works itself out for big cities, but it's definitely a challenge. But the other thing about the commute that's important is that 
it's really heterogeneous in the sense that different people have different reactions to it. Some people kind of like being on a train. It was a, a way of putting a, a sort of a period on the end of your day. Uh, and But the thing is that that's sort of a, a man in the gray flannel suit, which is a movie about people in the 1950s that worked for big corporations. It's sort of a way of thinking about it that I don't think the millennials really share. So the idea of the commute as a, as a valid and a, and a life-affirming part of your day, I don't see that people in their 20s really look at it that way. And so I think we really are going to have a serious challenge, uh, sort of a, an urban geography challenge about where people are going to live and how they're going to work, because I just don't think anybody that's gotten used to not having that commute is going to be easily drawn back into an office, no matter how nice it is. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's yeah, that's something I've been wondering as well. Um, no, it, and I'm I'm sure you guys will figure something out. Well, at the minimum, it's good to be able to know how long it's going to take and be able to do your planning and, and look at your employees and say, well, how long is it going to be for our Brooklyn employees to get to the west side versus the east side of Manhattan? Or how long is it going to take for our L.A. employees to get to uh, Westwood from from Hollywood and, and so forth? It's, it's very useful to be able to have at least the data so that you can make an informed choice because it's going to become a flashpoint between management and employees over time. So I think we're a little ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, no, totally. So if I own a building or multiple buildings, how do I actually get my properties onto square foot? Yeah, it's a little bit of a, an inverse question, which is it's how does square foot get the information about your building to, to onto our database? I'm like, okay. I would love it if every landlord said that question that you just asked. Uh, unfortunately, landlords are very successful. They make lots of money. And their core business is not database management. It's uh, renting space and, and improving their, their building. So the industry has been extremely slow in developing any kind of standards for transmitting listing information um, to the individual companies that use it, to the brokerage companies that use it. There's a company called CoStar, which is a, uh, a publicly traded company whose exclusive business is in uh, is getting the data from landlords and putting it onto a system that is proprietary that they will license to you, whether you're a broker or whomever. So the issue for us is given that CoStar is what it is, landlords haven't really figured out how to provide a publicly accessible feed for how their uh, space looks. So that will happen over time. That's another one of my, my do you believe this in the future questions, which is eventually every landlord will realize that having an API that allows people to tap into the database of their buildings and get all the available space out of it is in their interest to do that. Unfortunately, in today's world, it's uh, it's not quite that. So we have three tools that we use in order to gather that data. The first is we have a series of scrapers that go out on the internet and scrape information off of any publicly available site uh, that has data about a building. So a lot of big landlords have already got websites that have all their listings on it, like uh, SL Green here in New York. The second thing that, that we do is that there are there's a whole sort of kind of primitive industry of creating PDF flyers that describe space and that are sent out via email to uh, to various brokerage firms. It's crazy that we're still doing it this way, but the fact of the matter is that these things get sent out every time a space is put on the market, and we receive them just like everybody. We send them off to a business process outsourcing group in the Philippines. Uh, and they input the data and uh, help build out the database with that as well. And then the third thing we do is we call people on the phone, just like uh, CoStar, just like you know brokers do. We call landlords and we say, hey, what's available in your building? Any movement been going on since the last time we spoke? 
And that's a traditional task uh, for a researcher inside of a big company. And we do that as well. And between those, those three things, we get a pretty uh, high percentage of the space, like 90 something percent of the space in the market located on, uh, on our system. Interesting. That was a little geeky. I hope I hope I didn't geek out too much there. But uh... no, I actually happy that you said that because in the startup community, I find a lot of people think that they need to build everything with software and that nothing could be manual. And I get that sometimes in your case in point, you don't have a choice. There is no API to connect to every building on the planet and pull their listings that right. you have to do this stuff manually. And yes, you are trying to use technology to automate as much of this as possible. But I think that's such good advice that you as a company that have been around a number of years and have built a bunch of technology still have to do some manual things. Yes. And I, I think that's that's amazing. One of the things we did though, is we we did learn uh, some stuff from from other companies, which is that if you think about calling these buildings and getting data, it's sort of like a call center type activity. Right. So one of the things that our tech geeks did early on is they developed an internal call center product, which essentially allows the researchers to scroll through all of the listings that they need to validate and do a lot of them in the course of a day, the same way that a call center person would uh, would make a lot of calls. And it's not a particularly glamorous job, but we do use some level of automation so that it's, it's done efficiently as opposed to just like literally pulling out, uh, you know, going on the internet and trying to look for telephone numbers. No, that's smart. Interesting. I think that's really good advice. So then how do you monetize square foot? Well, it's, it's really pretty traditional brokerage uh, at the end of the day. Um, commissions are paid, uh, they're a percentage of the rent. And uh, the industry is a little odd because it's paid typically by the landlord. And there's a whole series of reasons for why that's been a tradition and, and the way that things work. Uh, and so um, it's really, in, in some ways, on the on the revenue side, it's like a traditional brokerage company. The only difference between us and a, and a traditional brokerage company in that regard is around a third of the revenue that our brokers generate is generated by the website, is generated by squarefoot.com. So they bring their own business and their own methods of, of finding uh, clients and opportunities, but we also provide them about a third of, the, of their business through the platform. Um, but generally speaking, it's a brokerage company that is tech enabled. Got it. Interesting. No, I, I think that's that's fascinating. So you quickly covered it, but I want to cover it again. Maybe do you want to give us the locations of where people can actually use squarefoot.com to actually find office space uh, these days? Sure. So uh, as I said, we have five offices. We're in Los Angeles. Uh, we're in Houston, Texas, and we are in Nashville, Atlanta, and our largest office is in New York. And our plan over the course of the next year is to open about half a dozen additional offices and to really begin to become a national brokerage company. And the theory of where we open is any place that has an NFL team, we find to be a good ah. place to open. So if you've got an NFL franchise, we're on our way to open you know, in a, in a city near you. And uh, because all of those cities are large enough to have a significant amount of, um, of real estate transactional activity go on. So I don't know which ones they're going to be because we drive everything off of people. Uh, so what we'll do first is we'll find a, a human who is good and does a good job. And then the beauty of the way that Jonathan built the platform here is that we can expand into a new market in a matter of months. 
And my old company, it took us almost two years, 18 wow. months to two years to get started in a new market. And here we can be generating revenue and, and, um, and up and operational in about 60 days. So that's an advantage of the platform and the technology because we build the database first and then we start handing leads off to the people in the office uh, the second you know that they start basically. And also we're pretty new age in how we think about office space, which is that you know it's inexpensive. We don't have a lot of administrative assistance. Uh, we're very lean and mean like a typical startup, uh, which means that we can create profitable offices without having to go through a lot of buildup. Interesting. No, and I actually think that's really good advice in itself, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, the dogs have to eat the dog food. That's one of the things that Microsoft, uh, that when I used to work uh, at Microsoft, I had a, a relationship with them as a broker for many years. And they would say, you know, you got to use Microsoft products to do this stuff. It's like we want it as a PowerPoint presentation, not as a book. And so uh, they would always say the dogs have to eat the dog food. Oh, that's, that's really good advice. Is there any other advice that you would give a startup or an entrepreneur or you know, whether they're in the real estate space or not that you've learned over the years? Whew, that's a that's a broad question. Um, what I'd say to the prop tech industry, my advice is this too shall pass. Everybody's got to buckle their seatbelt because the next couple of years are going to are going to be tough because of the recession and the capital markets uh, and the shortfall in available capital. So everybody's got to realize that the future is going to be in prop tech and not every company is going to make it but at the end of the day in 10 years the entire industry will be technologically sophisticated maybe not like wall street but it'll be a hell of a lot more sophisticated than it's been over the last couple of decades so i would say keep your chin up um prop tech will rule it's just going to take uh, it's going to take a couple more years before we get there that would be one piece of advice uh, in terms of people who are starting their own business um you know, I'm going to give very contrary advice to what a lot of brokers would do, which is I say I would say that flexibility is everything. It's got an optionality that's of incalculable value. So you should press your real estate provider, your broker, and say, how much flexibility can I build into this lease and how much is it going to cost? And if you don't have answers to those two questions, then you're really missing the point, in my view. Um, because what the broker will say is, well, you know, landlords really like to do five-year leases or 10-year leases or or whatever. And my perspective on that is I don't care. I mean, I care what's useful for the tenants that we represent. And I don't really care if the landlord has a bank that'd like them to have a 10-year lease. What I care about is what is the optionality that I can build into a transaction that'll make a company that doesn't quite know where it's going to be in a year or two successful. No, I, I think that's really good advice. So how about we close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Square Foot, and any other links you want to mention? Sure. Well, squarefoot.com, that's uh, that's the heart and the soul of the whole thing. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to find me, they can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I have many, many, many LinkedIn contacts. I'm happy to have more, especially if you're in our space. Um, and I'm out there on Twitter, although I mostly talk about the New York Rangers, a big hockey fan. I'm sure coming from Alberta, you are too. Um, yep. I've been a lifelong Ranger fan. So most of my Twitter feed has to do with uh, criticizing other hockey teams. Um, but uh, I'm not there on, on social media, so people can find me pretty readily if they look for me. Perfect, Michael. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Great. Same to you, Kev. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. 
The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future. <laughs>